I've got a lot of weird news things that flash across my phone all the time. And um, out in uh, New York now, there's a, there's a teacher that's suing the school district because she feels it's her responsibility to protect these transgendering kids from their parents. It's amazing, brothers, where this is going. And this is, what's, this is what we're talking about, brethren. This is why it's so important, amen, that we, that we pray and that we participate, amen, in, the, in, our, in our government as we, as we see. And you really see the, the definition of reprobate. I mean, if you don't understand what the biblical term reprobate means, just look. Take a look and see. And again, you know, if you, if, you, if you think you're a dog or a cat or whatever you are, you're identifying as this or that, you know, North Dakota doesn't want you. I mean, really? I mean, that's reprobate to the, to the max. I mean, just it's so unholy, so ungodly. And, uh, and of course, brethren, as we're turning to the book of Revelation this evening, we know that things are going to continue. Amen. They're just going to continue to, uh, if you will, continue to slide into that that abyss, if you will, until the Lord Jesus comes again. And so let's turn together this evening and to the book of Revelation. We'll be reading chapter 15. Of course, if we, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been together, and we know that Revelation chapter 15 is indeed the shortest chapter in the book of Revelation. And boy, there's a, there's a lot here as we're going to see. As Lord willing, we try and conclude this text this evening together. Look there, if you would, at verse number 3, Revelation chapter 15, verses 3 through the end of the chapter. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, <coughs> uh, thou King of, of the saints. Who shalt not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou art holy, for all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. And after that I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure and white linen, and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials, full of the wrath of God, who liveth forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke, from the glory of God and from his power. And no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. Man, I'll tell you, that just sends shivers up my spine when I read, especially that last text. The, the God Almighty, the power of God being present there in the temple. Interesting, it's open, and then he closes it at the end of the chapter, which is quite interesting. We're going to look at that together this evening. Well, John tells us here, again, just as kind of a way of kind of summating everything that we've been through so far in our text this evening or the last couple of weeks. John tells us that these saints lift up their voices in song and praise God who redeemed their souls. And you remember chapter or verse number two, of course, is who they've been redeemed from. Look there, if you would, just by way of reminder. There's four things here, that they, and this is what causes them to break out into song. And brethren, when the redeemed of the Lord have been redeemed by the strong arm of God, it should uh, send one and cause one, amen, to sing the great songs uh, or songs to the Lord like we're going to see here. They sing, but look at the four things there. And I saw, as it were, in verse 2, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast, number one, and over his image, number two, and over his Mark number three, and over the number of his name, number four. Stand on the sea of glass. And so as these saints begin to realize and they see and understand what God has done, what he has saved them from, they can't help themselves to sing not one song, brethren, but two. It is a most amazing thing. And remember, we looked at this, if you will, 
um, just uh, at, towards the end of the text last time. But let me just remind you that the song of Moses is the first song that's recorded in Holy Writ as being sung. Did you know that? That's the very first song in Exodus chapter 15. And interestingly enough, this song, the song of the Lamb, which they are singing here, is the very last song that's been recorded in Holy Writ as being sung. It's an amazing thing, brethren, when you consider that. The song of Moses, the first that's ever recorded. The song of the Lamb, the last that's ever recorded in Holy Writ as being sung. The song of Moses, as we know, brethren, again, uh, was sung, if you will, by the children of Israel when God, by his strong arm, delivered them from Egypt and Pharaoh. The song of the Lamb is sung here by the saints, brethren, <clears throat> unto God because his strong arm has delivered them from Antichrist. And you remember when we lay these songs side by song, side by side, it's an amazing thing as you compare the two songs. As they sang of the greatness of God, His victories, His majesty, His glory. We see the same thing here in this song. It's an amazing thing. In fact, when you look at the two songs, the song of the Lamb is sung by the saints, if you will, uh, by the glassy sea here in this text. And the song of Moses read by, was sang by what? This, by what? The Red Sea. So we, again, we see this glorious comparison between these two songs that are being sung here. It's an amazing thing. The song of Moses was to praise God for bringing his people out. The song of the Lamb is to praise God for bringing his people in. Amen. He's bringing them into, if you will, his glorious heavenly uh, place there. It's an amazing thing. And as I said, when one lays the two songs side by side, the last song is really an inspired synopsis of the first song. It really is an amazing thing. Look there, if you would, as we just kind of see why they're singing and why they're praising to God and what they're praising Him for, as we even should and do today. We sang tonight, we praise God for what He's done for His mighty works. But look at verse 3 there. The Bible says, they sing of His works, if you look there. Look what it says there. And they sang of the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, great and marvelous are thy works. So they're, they're praising God because of His works. Go look at the song of Moses. You'll see that they they praised him for his mighty works as they're standing there on the other side of the Red Sea. Look at in verse 3, they sang of his ways. Just and true are thy ways, they say, they tell God. Amen. They're submitting to the King of kings, to the Lord of lords, and saying, Lord, all your ways are right. All of your ways are perfect. All of your ways are just. They're praising God for these things. Verse number four, they sing of his glory. Glory to thy name, amen? And that's what we should always do. God should always be glorified in our meetings, our singing, what we do, our praying, our reading, our teaching. All of it should be something where God is glorified. And they are glorifying God for saving them from those things in verse number two. They also sing of his universal worship in verse number four. All the nations shall come. Amen. Amen. I am, oh, brothers, I'm telling you, you hear these things like we talked about tonight. I can't wait to see the nations bow the knee before God and singing. And his people singing unto him because of his greatness, because of his glory, because of who he is, because he is indeed the king of kings. And of course... This universal worship, of course, is an anticipation, an expectation of what, brethren? What's coming? The Lord Jesus Christ is coming to set up what? His millennial kingdom. And it still amazes me that people don't believe that it's going to be a literal millennial kingdom. They're singing and praising Him because there is going to be a millennial kingdom. They are anticipating what God is going to be doing during that time. It's an amazing thing. And finally, brethren, they sing of His righteous judgments. 
for thy judgments are made manifest. Again, God is perfect. He is holy. And his people know that. We understand that. We believe it. And we bend the knee just as these saints here are absolutely doing that. The song of Moses, the song of the Lamb, both speak of God's deliverance of his people and the overthrow of our enemies. Again, brethren, this is the thing. It isn't just that God is glorious because he is, but brothers, he is going to decimate his enemies, which are way too powerful for you and I to even consider, brethren. And so again, they're praising God for what he has done and what he's doing by his gloriously outstretched arm. Now look there, if you would, at verse number 5. Look what it says there. They sing the song of Moses. They're praising him for his works. They're praising him for his glory. They're praising him for his ways. They're praising him for his works. All these things. And then, verse number 5, we notice there that John's religious affections are drawn to another thing in heaven. Look at verse number 5 there, if you would. The Bible says, And after that I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle, now this is important, of the testimony in heaven was opened. What a glorious statement as John's affections, his religious affections now are drawn to the temple of the tabernacle, of the testimony. And brethren, that's very, very important. What John says here as you study this thing out is just quite an amazing thing, if you will. That word testimony. <laughs> now, brethren, we know biblically there are many definitions for this. I mean, many, not, well, yes, it would be many, if you will, contextual definitions. A testimony in, in a context can mean this. Here, brethren, it's a stunning thing. When you look this word testimony up here, this is what it literally means. That was his evidential Evident, evidence that is witnessed through the Decalogue. You know what the Decalogue is? Deca meaning ten, log is the Greek word for what words? Literally, the Ten Commandments. That's literally what is being spoken of here. The Decalogue. Go look it up. It's a stunning thing. Again, you look in, in text, you'll see testimony means this, testimony means that. Here, it is the tabernacle of the testimony, the Decalogue, that's being opened and revealed. It is a most stunning thing. In fact... Turn with me, if you would, for just a moment. Again, brethren, we see, now I'm not saying it's all Jewish, but again, we see the Jewishness of the text this evening again because it is absolutely referencing the Ten Commandments. There is no question about that. I told Wendy tonight before we came, I said, it's an amazing thing when you study this out. <laughs> and and the, the Word of God just gets deeper, and it gets deeper, and it gets deeper. And you have to just say, all right, I've got to stop at a certain place, at a certain level. Amen? Now let's turn together again so we can define this Word. Look, if you would, in Exodus chapter 34. Again, we see here what this Word means. Testimony, the Decalogue, 10 words, the words literally in the Greek. Look, if you would, here at Exodus chapter 34. Exact same word that's used here in Exodus chapter 34. Our biblical definition, I was talking to Howard earlier, and he goes, yeah, you know, I was go out calling with this guy, and, you know, we'd have a Bible study, and these people would always say, you always use so much Bible, Howard. Why do you use so much Bible? Well, because we want to have the Bible define what we believe. That's why we use it and what they're going to believe, amen, because it is the Word of God. And so we use Bible. You, you, let Bible. you let the Bible define itself, brethren. Again, when you go through the book of Revelation, there's no need to, for men's conjectures concerning this stuff. It is what it absolutely is. Look here at Exodus chapter 34. Look at verse number 27. You'll find the word Decalogue. 
right here in Exodus chapter 34. Look at verse 27. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write thou these words, for after that tenor of these words I have made a covenant with thee and with Israel. And he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights, and did, enter, uh, did neither eat uh, bread nor drink water. And he wrote upon the tables the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. That's exactly the same word. This is exactly what John is seeing, the tabernacles being opened. And that word testimony is Decalogue. Now, this is important, brethren, again, as we study this out. And again, as I said, this thing gets really deep. It gets really, really deep. I can't take us that deep. It did me and spun me kind of down into a, into a glorious, deep, theological, what I like to say, just amazing place. But look here again. So we see that word decalogue, decaten logos, words. Look at Exodus 24, back up there just a little bit again now. This is the tabernacle of testimony, the decalogue. Look what he calls it here in Exodus chapter 24. Look there if you would. Now, again, the reason I'm not beating a dead horse is because this is important. Again, testimony is defined differently contextually, and that's why this is so important. As we look at what John is seeing, look there at Exodus chapter 24. Look at verse number 12. And the Lord said unto Moses, Come up to me into the mount and be, be, and, uh, be there, and I will give thee tables of stone. That's the testimony. That's the decalogue. Look what else he mentions. A law. Do you see? I mean, this is what happens. This stuff, when you define it, it just gets deeper and deeper. So we got the, the testimony, the decalogue. You have a law. Look what else he says that's there in that particular verse in 24, and commandments, which I have written, that thou mayest teach them. And so you see this in Biblia, and if you see this from a Jewish perspective and understanding it from a Jewish, this is how they understood it. You had the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, you had the law of God, which we understand we're going to look at, and you had the commandments. Now, Psalms 119, we, we look at that. It's an amazing thing. Again, I don't have time. We don't have time to get in there. But if you go into Psalms 119, you'll see this separation in Psalms 119. It's an amazing thing. You'll see him talking about the law. You'll see him talking about statutes. That's another terminology that's used there. You'll see him talking about the Decalogue. It's an amazing thing, brethren, when you see this. Now, again, why is John specifically bringing this to our forefront? There's a glorious purpose for all of it. So, again, we see the tables of stone, which is the testimony. We see a law, and we see the commandments. And we know there was, what, 600 and how many commandments was there, brother? 613, plus the Ten Commandments, plus the law of God that was given there to Moses. And it's an amazing, stunning thing, if you will. Look at Exodus 31. Just go ahead just a little bit here. Again, we see this a couple times in the book of Exodus concerning that. Look at Exodus chapter 31. Look at verse number 18. And again, we see this. And he gave unto Moses when he made an end of communing with him upon Mount Sinai. Two tables of what? Testimony. There it is again. The Decalogue. There it is. Two tables of the testimony. And then he says of stone, the tables of stone written with the finger of God. Look at Isaiah. Look what Isaiah says. Look at Isaiah chapter 8, if you will, again. Just a couple of them here. And there's a reason why I'm laying this out here for us. To help us again to think how John is thinking. To help him to see what John is seeing. Because again, our Western minds, <laughs> our Christian minds, don't always think the way the Jewish mind thought. And this is what John is recording. Look at Isaiah, even the great prophet, the evangelical Jesus Christ uh, testifying uh, evangelical prophet in the Old Testament. Look at Isaiah chapter 8. Look at verse 
number 12. Isaiah chapter 8, look at verse number 12. Did I write that down right? Say ye not a confederacy to all them to whom this people shall say, a confederacy, fear ye, fear be afraid. Sanctify the Lord, it's not the right one. Isaiah 8. Where's that at? The law and the testimony. Oh, uh, verse 20. Isaiah chapter 8, look at verse number 20. There it is. I knew it was in there. Look at verse number 20. To the law and to the testimony. There it is again. Amen. So we see the law of God. We see the testimony of God. We see the commandments of God all brought together and drawn together for God's glorious purpose, which we're going to look at here. To the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because what, brethren? They have no light in them. And so, again, we see in the Jewish mind, in the Jewish understanding, what they believed and what the Old Testament taught is that the law, brethren, guards the Decalogue. It's an amazing, stunning thing. The law guards the Decalogue. It's an amazing, stunning thing, what they believe and what I believe, again, the Old Testament teaches, the Ten Commandments, all of which declare, all of which declare, all of which show, right, the holiness of God, the glory of God, the greatness of God, all of them, when they are all combined and all tied together, this is what they do. They are a testimony of God. It's an amazing thing. It really is. Now, what was God's holy intention for the law? What was God's holy intention for the tabernacle? What was God's holy intention for the temple? What was it, brother? It was indeed to show forth a Christology, if you will, a testimony of the perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ and his saving, uh, if you will, uh, sacrifice. That's what it was for. It was also to show men how wicked we are, how corrupt we are, and how we need a Savior. So John's looking in heaven. He sees the tabernacle of testimony open, and there's the Ten Commandments of God there. And what did the Ten Commandments of God do? What did the Decalogue do? It showed the holiness of God and showed the wickedness of men. It shows us how crooked we are. And so we see this testimony that John is seeing there, if you will, in the, in the, in the temple there. Now, we have to remember, this is a Christology. This is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ came, brethren, if you remember, not to what? Not to destroy the law, but to what? To fulfill it. What did he do, brethren? He fulfilled it perfectly. Again, this is what John is seeing. We see the holiness of God. We see the holiness of Christ who's coming. Amen. And this is the righteous grounds by which God is going to unleash the things that are coming in chapter 16, chapter 17, and chapter 18. The seven vials, the seven bowls are unleashed because of this very thing. They have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, they've rejected God. They have followed, if you will, the Antichrist. And those are the righteous grounds by which he is going to send this judgment. Now, turn to Matthew chapter 5. Again, the Lord Jesus Christ, again, he did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. And we want to see how perfectly he fulfilled the law. The tying in of the testimony, the tying in of the law, the tying in of the commandments. Did God, did, did the Lord Jesus Christ keep every law of God? Yes. <laughs> yeah, he did. Did, did. did Jesus Christ keep every one of the Ten Commandments perfectly? Yes, he did. Did he keep all of God's commandments perfectly? He did. Why? Because you and I can't. 
Because again, it shows us how crooked we are. It shows us that there's a great Savior that's going to be coming. The first time to die for the sins of men, but the second time what? To gather up, to, to bring together His glorious, if you will, that which He has bought and paid for. As we saw last Sunday morning, that He purchased with His own blood. It's amazing, isn't it? He fulfilled everything. Think of that. The law, the Ten Commandments, and all the commandments, the 613. Think of that for a moment, perfectly. He fulfilled what you and I could never do. In fact, He fulfilled it for you and I. It's a stunning thing when you think about that, brother. I don't know about you, but I had some bad thoughts today. Huh? Maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just me, but sometimes I have bad thoughts, and what I mean is I think about someone in not such a good way. Amen? That's what I'm talking about. It's not like it's perverted. I'm just saying you have bad thoughts. You think things you shouldn't think. Jesus never did that. He was perfect in keeping the law. He was perfect in the Ten Commandments. He was keeping in the 613 other commandments that came. It's an amazing thing, perfect. But look at here how perfect it was. Look at Matthew chapter 5. And again, brethren, a familiar portion of Scripture. This is why John's looking and going, whew, this is what we see. Look at Matthew chapter 5. Look at verse number 17. Look there, if you would. Think not that I am come to destroy the law. Or what? The prophets. (laughs) No, I have not come to destroy it. He says, I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill Not only did Christ fulfill it, the law, the Ten Commandments, the prophets, all of it, he fulfilled it perfectly. But listen to what he says, to the fineness, to the complete holiness that he fulfilled it. Look there if you would. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle shall no wise pass from the law, till all be what? Fulfilled. Now, brethren, you understand what a jot and a tittle is, don't you? We understand, of course, that jot, or you can call it jot, J-O-D. Jot is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And it's interesting, that thing is small. We get really the terminology that we would use, the iota. It is just a very minimal, small thing. What he's saying is, I fulfilled it all, even to the very iota of things. Now listen, a tittle is even smaller than that. Now you envision in your mind, if you had a Hebrew letter up here, I'm going I'm to use like the number seven. But, so you have two Hebrews letters. They look exactly the same. There's seven like that and seven like that. The jod is this. The tittle is the little elbow on the end that changes the letter. It actually changes the letter. It's an amazing thing. It's even smaller than the jod. Every jod, every tittle, the, to the very minutest, he has fulfilled the law, the Ten Commandments. He's kept them perfectly. And John sees this. And he's quite an amazing thing. In fact, look at 1 Timothy again, speaking of testifying, speaking of the Decalogue, speaking of that terminology, that word. Look here, if you will, Jesus keeping it perfectly, fulfilling every jot, every tittle, the smallest to the smallest. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. And again, a very familiar portion of Scripture. But we see the importance again because, again, what is coming is... This is foundational. This is the righteous judgment. This is the righteous thing that God is going to deploy through these angels because of who Christ is and because of what he did and because they rejected him, his perfectness. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2 there. Again, we very familiar portion of Scripture to all of us. Look at verse number 5. Andy might want to read this one, Howard. Andy may want to open up his Bible here and read this one. For there is one God, 
and one mediator between God and men, the man who? Christ Jesus. Now look what it says. Who gave himself a ransom for all to be what? Testified in due time. This is exactly what's, going, what's coming their way. Uh, brethren, when we notice the temple's open, when God closes the temple, there's a glorious purpose and reason for all of it. It really is. That which is about to come forth from the temple is a manifestation of God's judgments on those who have indeed rejected Christ, who is indeed the testimony and the law. He encompasses all of it. And he fulfilled all of it perfectly. And John looks and he sees this thing in heaven there, if you will, as the temple is laid open. Now look there at verses 6 and 7. So John beholds this thing. He beholds the testimony. He sees that there. And then look what happens. Look at verses 6 and 7 of Revelation chapter 15. So he sees these things. He's in awe struck. He's beholding it. He just is amazed at the holiness of God, the holiness of his word, the holiness of who he is, his very being. And then look here at verses 6 and 7. The Bible says, And the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues. Now listen, clothed in pure and in white. It's an amazing thing, linen. And having their breasts girded with golden girdles. And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God, who liveth forever and ever. What a glorious description that John gives to us here. The Spirit of God leads him to tell us that these seven angels came directly directly from the presence of God himself. They're in the temple, amen? And so the Bible says here that these seven angels came out, they came directly from God's presence, indicating that their work that is about to be unleashed in chapter 16 and chapter 17 as the vials are spread out upon the earth are indeed a divine mandate from God. They came directly from him, they are serving him, they are servants of God, and they came out of the temple. Now, their clothing depicts to us, brethren, Purity and holiness, which is a direct re reflection of who? It's a direct reflection of God, the one whom they have just came from. They've came from his temple who is holy, who is pure, who is clean, if you will, and pure as pure can be. And those golden bands around their chest speak of God. They speak of him as his majesty and glory. Because again, that which is about to be unleashed, the seven final bull judgments, which are fulfilled with his wrath, filled with his wrath, if you will, they will bring glory to God. And this ultimately, brethren, is what it's about. It's about bringing glory to God. In this judgment that's coming, it is going to bring glory to God because of Christ, because of what he's done, because of his work, and because of who they have indeed rejected. Each one of these vials, each one of these bowls, being a discharge of his righteous verdicts against the beast, against the Antichrist, against his loyal followers, if you will, and their world, and uh, the one world unholy federation that they are gathering together against the Lord. Remember, there's this war coming, there's this battle Armageddon that's coming, and this is what God is going to unleash upon them. It is a stunning thing. Now look there, if you will, at verse number 8. So we see all of this taking place. Verse number 8 comes to our immediate attention. And the Bible says, And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no man was able to enter into the table till the seven plagues, or into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. Well, John tells us here, brethren, 
that the temple that was just opened earlier in our text has now been closed. <laughs> it's, it's a stunning thing. The temple was laid open. The tabernacle was open. The Bible says here now that God himself has closed this temple. And it will remain closed during the, during the duration of the tribulation. So he closes it here. Now, this is something very significant, brethren. Again, we have said that which going forth, God's grace is removed. The access to his grace is removed. The access to repentance is removed. And this is an indication of that, that his temple is closed. He's closing it for the duration. Men's access to grace and salvation have been cut off. God here has closed the door to the temple, amen, because he is there. It's too late. It's too late to pray. It's too late to repent. This is what this indicates to us. In fact... We think, brethren, in the Bible, in Scripture, of another door that was made that was closed by God himself. When repentance was withdrawn, when grace was withdrawn, it's the same thing here. Again, we, we saw it, didn't we, way back in Genesis. What an amazing thing. I want you to turn there with me. Again, where God's repentance is withdrawn, where his long suffering has ended, where it's stopped, it's the same thing here. It's over, it's done, it's too late. Same thing in Genesis. Turn with me there if you would. Again, a very familiar portion of Scripture, Genesis chapter 6. There's this thing called the ark. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? The ark of God. Look at Genesis chapter 6. And I want you again to, again, we we know this, brethren. We're Bible believers. We have read these texts. We know this. But it is interesting, again, to note that God is doing, again, what he's already done. It's an amazing, stunning thing. He's shutting the door of grace and mercy until his work is completed. Look there at Genesis chapter 6, if you would. Look at verse 14. Make thee an ark of gopher wood, and room shalt thou uh, thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. And this is the fashion which thou shalt make of it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, that's 450 feet. The breadth of it shall be 50 cubits, that's 75 feet wide. And the height of it, 30 cubits, that's 45 feet high. Now look at what he tells them to put in there. He says in verse 16, A window shalt thou make to the ark, and in it a cubit shalt thou finish above. And the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof. With the door second and third stories shalt thou make it. And so he's given a very specific direction. Noah is by God. This is how you are to make the ark. It's got to have a window. You've got to have a door. And again, brethren, as we turn to chapter 7, we again notice and we see as God withdraws his grace, as he withdraws his mercy, as he, as he shuts the door on repentance, this is what happens. Look at Genesis chapter 7 right across the page there. Look at verse number 10. Look what the Bible says. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up, and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. In the selfsame day, Noah entered in Shem and Ham, Shem and, Ham and Japheth, and sons of Noah, Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them into the ark. They and every beast after his kind, and all the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth after his kind, and every fowl after his kind, and every bird of every sort. And they went in unto Noah into the ark, two and two of all flesh, wherein is the breath of life. Now look at verse 16. And they went in, went in male and female of all flesh, as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Do you understand what that means, brethren? 
right? When the Lord shuts the door, there's no opening the door. Do you understand that? Amen. This is what happened in the great flood when he flooded the whole world because men's, what? Men's thoughts were only evil continually. Think of that, brother. Look what we see. We see the depraved, the reprobate minds, and we're not even close yet. But the whole thing here, brethren, is this, is that God shut the door. God removed the ability and the, and the granting of his repentance. He removed the ability of them to pray for anything. He removed it himself. He shut the door, and then he sent the flood upon the earth, and he destroyed all of mankind, everything that had the breath of life in it. It's the same thing here. We're gearing up in verse 8 as God, as his, as his presence comes into the temple. Oh, he's always been there, but we're going to see the Shekinah glory that just shows up there in the temple. But it's an amazing thing as he is there. No man is allowed to enter. Repentance is removed. All of it's gone. Nothing but judgment. And that, again, is what we see in chapter 16, chapter 17, as the vials are uh, released, if you will, of the angels, the seven last bowls. What is it? Eight. Yeah. Let's just finish up verse number eight there. So we see, again here, brethren, that man's access to grace and salvation is cut off. The Lord God shuts the door by his glorious, infinite power. Now listen, as I said, although God has been in the temple, we've seen that. The temple's been open, the tabernacle's been open, God has been present there, his holiness has been there. We've seen it by the description of the angels, his holiest purity that's been there in the temple. This is the time, though, that John says, when his Shekinah glory manifests itself, which typically in holy writ indicates moments of great importance and great, if you will, significance. Amen? We again see this. There's smoke there. This is the idea. This is the presence of God. This is the judgment of God coming. This is exactly what we see over and over again. Again, in the Old Testament, we see God in His Shekinah glory showing up in this way. It's the same thing here. He sees the Decalogue. He sees the Shekinah glory of God there. Look with, just for a moment, Exodus chapter 40, and then we'll, we'll finish this up since we're kind of back there. Look at Exodus chapter 40. There is something of great significance that is coming. God's Shekinah glory shows up there. The tabernacle, the temple is shut off. No man is allowed into his whole. That just shows you, brethren, how holy God is. When God says he is holy, it means that he is holy. He is above every other thing human that exists. Just think of this. Just think of our, our sin, brethren, for a moment. And I, I don't want to get sidetracked, but I think of it. This is what I think in my own mind. God who is so holy, amen? That's why the great transaction, the great substitute is such a glorious doctrine. To understand the holiness of God and that no man can see him, that no one can enter into his presence. It's stunning, and this is what's happened. He shut the temple. His presence, your kind of glory is there. And again, we see this. In Exodus, look at chapter 40 again. This is how John, a Jewish man, as he's looking at this, would have seen this. Look there, if you would, at verse number 32. When they went into the tent of the congregation, and when they came near unto the altar, they washed as the Lord had commanded them. You remember, brethren, that there was a certain thing that they had to do when they came into the tabernacle. They would have to wash a certain way. They'd have to let the water drip off. I mean, it's an amazing, stunning thing. You go back and read, again, what's God doing? He's showing them His perfection. He's showing them that it must be done in a most holy and important way because it is a Christology. It's a typology of Christ. This is what it is. This is what you're seeing. 
And the Bible says in verse 32, And he reared up the cord around about the tabernacle and the altar and set it up the, uh, the hanging of the court gate. So Moses finished the work. Then a cloud. There it is again. This is what comes. This is what John sees uh, here in Revelation. Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent. I mean, even Moses, who was a friend of God, who was, if you will, many glorious things said of him, could not even enter in to where God is. This is what's happened. This is what he's indicating in Revelation. It's the same thing. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So again, this indicates to us, through John, as he's led by the Spirit of God, that God has been present there, but his Shekinah glory now shows up, and no man is allowed to even come near or enter into the temple. Not until, brethren, he opens it again, which he's going to do, Amen. After the tribulation, the tabernacle, the temple will be opened again by God himself. We will be there. Those of us who have been saved, those of us who are the elect of God, those of us who have been, if you will, imputed with God's righteousness, his holiness, his purity. That's why any of us will be anywhere near the new Jerusalem. Anywhere near it because of the work that God has done to each of us. Same here in the book of Revelation. This is what we're seeing it's an amazing thing. Now, I need to close, so let me just close with a, a most practical point. I told Wendy that uh, when I was in Minot on Monday, I think it was Monday, right, or Tuesday? Monday. It's interesting, isn't it? You can be standing around, and there was several of my customers standing there. There were some maids, and there were some other people. The front desk clerk was there, and we're just kind of having small talk, right? You're just kind of small talking, that kind of thing. And their maintenance guy walked up. Well, we were standing there, and he, said, and he starts talking. I said, yeah, I said, you know, and my hair is turning color and all that. And he goes, yeah, he goes, you know what? <laughs> yeah, it makes you, you know, as we age, it makes you think about the afterlife, doesn't it? And what did I think right away? Open door. Open door. So I looked at him, and I said, yes, sir, it, it certainly does. It, it makes us all consider, you know, where we're at, how fast this life is going. In fact... The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1 that, you know, we must trust. That's what they did. They trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they were saved. And brother and I told Wendy, it was like, you know what it's like when there's cockroaches running around in the dark, and you flip a light on? As soon as the Lord's name, as soon as I started talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, it was like somebody flipped a light on, and the cockroaches scattered. They had no more time. We sat there for five minutes joking and laughing and talking it up until you bring up the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, brethren, there is a division there. But brethren, this is the idea, right? We must be faithful. We must be faithful to preach His Word until it comes to a close. Amen? And even now, who knows? Howard's talking about what he's got to do. Amen? That's a calling of God. Mark met with, and, and Kayla, their family met with some people. You just be faithful in teaching the Lord Jesus Christ, speaking of Him. Amen? Until he comes, or until, as we see here in our text, when he closes the door, when repentance is no more, when being saved is finished by God's command. It is a stunning, stunning thing, isn't it? Such a glorious thing. So thankful. You read, you know, you hear, we hear about things going on all over the world. And what does it bring us back to, brethren? It brings us back to this. It brings us back to, what did we sing tonight? Amen? I know he holds 
the future. And Howard said what? The past, the present, and the future. He holds it all. And praise God for that, brethren. Because what's coming now as we move forward in chapter 16 is something, brethren, that is an amazing thing. The wrath of God as it is ratcheted up um, tenfold. Again, repentance is withdrawn. The temple's closed. Men, as we're going to see as we get later on in the text, the depravity of men who know that it's God and all they can do is curse his name and shake their fist at him. That's why Revelation 16 is what it is. That's why they do it. Repentance has been withdrawn. And the depravity of men is all open for all to see. Even knowing it's God, even knowing it's the Lord, even knowing it, what do they do? They stand there and all they do is shake their fist in rebellion against a holy, righteous, pure God. Amen? Amen. All right, well, let's pray together this evening and we'll be finished up. Father, again, we, not with any sort of arrogance or the other horrible word that you don't like, pride, it isn't with any of that that we, as we're gathered together tonight, as we read your word, we understand more and more what your grace really is. We understand that it is a gift that you give. It is a gift of God that no man may boast. And Father, again, we thank you for those of us who are saved tonight that that grace was bestowed by you upon us. That you gave us the gift of faith that we might believe the work of God, John tells us. And Father, we all we can do is bend our knees. All we can do is praise your holy name for your great works, for your glorious ways, for your judgments, for they are good and holy. And Father, we thank you tonight for all of them. And Father, now as we leave this place this evening, thank you for the time we had to pray together tonight, that we had to open your word together tonight. And Father, now again, as I said, as we depart this place, May you be ever um, in the center of our religious affections. As we go to work tomorrow, may we look for that open door that we might speak and say some biblical truths and speak of the Lord Jesus Christ and his saving work. And uh, Lord, again, pray for Howard as he deals with his thing at work for the second or third time now. It seems you've put him there as a, as a mouthpiece to speak for righteousness. And as he, I think he said earlier, I know he said it to me personally, that there are others who believe like he does, but they won't say anything. And so, Father, we thank you for giving him a stiff backbone for truth. And think of Mark and Kayla again. We pray for their meeting they had. Oh, Lord, that you would use that, that you would use them. And think of the... The conversation I had this week, as you providentially allowed me to, to speak of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yes, they, they did scatter. It was quite, quite a thing to see. But we do not know. We simply water. We simply plant. And you give it the increase. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. And I know each of us in this room probably this week will have another opportunity. So we pray you give us strength and boldness to speak the truth, to stand firm, and Lord, while your grace moves upon 
the lost sheep. And Father, now we thank you for our families. We thank you for your love and your mercy towards us, your grace. We ask and pray all these things in the Lord Jesus Christ's holy name, that name which is above every name, he who is indeed coming physically again in the clouds, he who is indeed going to reign for a thousand years upon the earth, establish his kingdom here. And uh, Father, we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we eagerly anticipate that and we know it's true and we can't wait for it to come to pass. Father, we love you now and pray all these things in his name and all God's people said, amen, amen.